Acts chapter 25, let's pray and we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we believe that it is an exciting time to be alive and to be a follower of Jesus. Lord, I pray today that as we look at your word that, God, you would minister to our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. Lord, we thank you for your provision here at Calvary Vista and all that it allows us to do for your glory, for your kingdom. Lord, it's a blessing to partner with you. Minister your word to our hearts now in Jesus' name. And everyone said? All right, so today is the big game. Super Bowl 58. How many of you are watching the game today? Okay, some of you, I know some of you have given up on on football, and I I understand that, or NFL football. Uh, But I got to tell you, I'm I'm watching the game. I'm not as spiritual as uh, some of you, so. But but part of the reason... (laughs) Part of the reason is I have been following the last two years the story of the 49ers quarterback, and um, it's a great story. How many 49er fans in the house today? Okay, how how many Chiefs fans? (laughs) How many of you do not care whatsoever? All right, okay. How many of you just like to watch for the commercials? (laughs) But, you know, the, Brock Purdy, he's the, the 49ers quarterback, and um, amazing story. So in 2022, he was picked as the last, and this, there's a point to this, okay? So he was picked <laughs> as the last pick in the, in the NFL draft. I mean, like oh, seven rounds go by, and, and he's finally the last guy that gets picked. And they have a name for that guy. They call him Mr. Irrelevance, Okay. So, um, and it's like, you have no chance of making it into the NFL when you're picked as the last pick. But not only does he make the team, in 2023, or 2022 actually, two of the the starting quarterbacks go down, get hurt. He steps into the starting role and leads the team all the way to the NFC championship game. It's like the game right before the Super Bowl. And then he gets hurt, hurts his arm. He's out, out of the game, can't even throw, goes through this remarkable uh, rehab, comes back this year, surprisingly, and leads the team to the Super Bowl. And he's an on-fire, born-again Christian who's very, very outspoken for, about his faith. And today he's going up against Patrick Mahomes, the, the Chiefs quarterback, who is, like they say, the, the greatest quarterback on the planet and maybe will be the greatest quarterback of all time. So Purdy, the, the 49ers quarterback, is a huge underdog. And so today is his big moment. Purdy will definitely be on trial to see if he can pass the big test. Well, in our text today, we see this is Paul's big moment. You see, 20 years before this at Paul's, right around Paul's conversion, Jesus told Paul, you are my chosen vessel and you are going to preach to the Jews. You're going to preach to the Gentiles and you are going to testify of me before kings and rulers. And today we're going to see Paul does exactly that. This is his big moment. This is his Super Bowl moment, we could say. And we're going to see that Paul does not 
disappoint. The title of the message today is this, Who's on Trial? And today we're going to see Paul's last court hearing recorded here in the book of Acts. It takes place in this beautiful amphitheater there in Caesarea that overlooks the ocean. If you've been to Israel with us, we always go to that amphitheater. It's absolutely amazing. And here we're going to see that Paul shares his testimony before Governor Felix before King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, and before the who's who of Caesarea, as well as the religious leaders who come down from Jerusalem, and they are after blood, Paul's blood. But in reality, it's not Paul who's on trial. It's everyone who's listening to him. They're the ones who are on trial, and the same thing holds true in our day and age today. You see, the world right now is seeking to put the church on trial, to put followers of Jesus on trial in the court of public opinion, in the media. But in reality, it's not we, and we need to realize this, it's not we who are on trial, it is the world around us. It's the naysayers of Jesus Christ. They are the ones who right now are being weighed in the balances and found to be wanting. Now there's a lot that we can learn today from Paul's testimony as he stands before this king, this governor, and those who were really wanting to put him to death. But what we're going to do today is chapter 25 is a bit of a a review of Paul's uh, story and kind of how he got here. And so we're going to, it's kind of a setup chapter to the trial in in chapter 26. So I'm going to summarize for the sake of time today, a lot of chapter 25, but there's three things that we're going to zero in on today. We're going to see the persistence of the enemy. We're going to see the power of the gospel. And we're going to see what is to be the proper response of the gospel. So as chapter 25 opens, we find that there is a new governor in Caesarea. Remember, if you were with us last week, it was Felix. Now it's a guy by the name of Festus. And you recall last week that the old governor, Felix, found nothing of which to charge Paul with. As he talked to Paul, as he heard his accusers, it's like there's no, there's no civil laws of Rome that have been broken here. This is a religious thing. These are religious leaders who are against this guy. So he, he says there, there's nothing of which to hold Paul in chains or, or definitely not to put him to death. But in order to appease the Jews, he leaves Paul in prison there in the palace for two years. So two years go by and chapter 25 opens by letting us know that there's a new governor in power. And here's where we're going to see our first point, the persistence of the enemy. Look at chapter 25, verse one. It says, now when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon Paul to Jerusalem while they lay in wait to ambush along the road to kill him. Now check this out. Pause there and give me your attention. Two years have gone by. 
And if you were with us last week, remember, they had this whole assassination plot where they were going to be taking Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and they wanted to ambush him and kill him. Two years have gone by. Paul has been in prison. He hasn't been in on the scene. You would think he would be out of sight, out of mind, but not with these guys, because their bitterness and hatred ran deep. It's demonic in nature. And they wanted to take out Paul. They wanted him to be killed. And so when a new governor comes on the scene, first opportunity they get, they're like, hey, can you bring him down here so that we can kill him? And and we see a similarity to this in the spiritual warfare that we face. You see, the hatred of the devil toward us never, ever diminishes. I want you to note that. The devil is not your friend. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that he is out to get us. That his job, his goal is to kill and to rob and to destroy. And he knows that an on-fire, spirit-filled Christian is is an influential force. And so the last thing he wants to, to do is to see us get on fire for Jesus. So he's always on the attack. He's relentless, and we need to realize that. So we see here the persistence of the enemy. Let's pick it up in verse 4. But it says, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, Let those who have authority among you come with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. So the Jewish leaders, this is what we see happens in chapter 25, just like that we saw in chapter uh, 24, they come to Caesarea, they lay out their charges before Festus, and Festus again realizes that there's no civil laws that have been broken here, this is purely a religious thing. And remember, Paul is a Roman citizen, and he as a Roman citizen has rights, and due process is one of them. And so that's why he's here in Caesarea. Because of the assassination plot against him, the the Romans took him to Caesarea to be under the protection there of the governor. So what Festus does is he ends up asking Paul if he's willing to waive his rights and go down to Jerusalem, or excuse me, go up to Jerusalem and face his accusers there, you know, in the, the court of the Sanhedrin again. And Paul's like, been there, done that, I'm not doing that again. And Paul uses his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. He goes, I want to go to Caesar. And we saw in chapter 23, verse 11, that that Jesus had told Paul, just as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify of me in Rome. And Paul's like, I know Jesus wants me in Rome. This is the best way to get there. I appeal to Caesar. I'm not going down to Jerusalem. And so then we see in verse 12 of 25 that Festus says, okay, as a Roman citizen, you have that right. If you're appealing to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. But get this, now Festus has a problem. And the problem is this. He can't just send a prisoner to the emperor without a just cause. 
He has to write out and document. This is why this guy has appealed to you and this is why he's been on trial. But he doesn't have anything of any civil law that's been broken. So he's thinking, you know, I'm going to look foolish in, in the eyes of the, of the emperor if I, if I send Paul to him without any due cause. So Festus calls on King Agrippa to come and help him. And he's hoping that King Agrippa can come up with a reason why he can send Paul to Rome. So we pick it up in verse 13. It says, after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice, that's his wife, came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now Agrippa, this is Agrippa II. He was the last of the Herods. And the first of the line of the Herods was Herod the Great. He was the one who killed all the babies in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus's birth. And then his son, Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist beheaded in prison. And then his grandson, Herod Agrippa I, is the one who had James killed, the apostle James. So the Herods have been ruthless against the church. And now this is his great-grandson, Herod Agrippa II, and he's been appointed by the Romans to be the tetrarch over Galilee and over the area of Judea. And so Rome had given Herod Agrippa legal jurisdiction over the temple there in Jerusalem. And Agrippa, he knows the Jews. He knows their laws. And he shows up here in Caesarea with his wife, Bernice. And she is described in literature as this ravaging, ravishing beauty. But get this, she was also his sister. He married his sister. So contrary to every law of the Jews, these two were living in an incestuous relationship. And so it's before this morally decadent couple enslaved by their own lust and passion that Paul is about to appear. And so they show up in Caesarea. Festus tells Agrippa his dilemma. I've got to find a reason to send this guy to Rome. I need, you know, I, I need your help. And Agrippa says, I, I would love to hear from this guy, Paul. I'd love to hear his story. And so this sets the stage for a contrast of Super Bowl proportions. Look at verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, the who's who, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. So I want you to picture this scene. All these people, the king, the queen, the governor, and all the who's who of Caesarea are entering into the amphitheater there in Caesarea. And Festus is turning this into a spectacle. I mean, this is like the Grammys. This is like, you know, the red carpet. Agrippa and Bernice enter, it says, in great pomp. They're decked out, in other words. People would be asking Bernice, Bernice, who are you wearing? You know, that sort of thing is happening here, okay? That's what's going on. The who's who of Caesarea would be there, and then Paul is brought in. And I want you to picture in your mind the contrast. Agrippa and Bernice would, be, would have entered in wearing their 
purple royal robes, crowns on their head. Festus would have come in wearing his scarlet red robe. That's what the governors wore in that day. And all of the onlookers there would be dressed to impress. And then Paul's brought in. And he's dressed in the garb of a prisoner. He's chained to two guards. History tells us that Paul was unimpressive in his personal appearance. Historians verify that Paul was a short man with bowed legs and a long crooked nose. And he had a receding hairline. He was going bald. And on top of that, he was horrifically scarred from all the beatings that he had taken. Horrifically scarred from having rocks in Lystra thrown at him where they tried to stone him to death. In fact, it was the French atheist Voltaire who called Paul an ugly little Jew. That's that's how he was seen. So on the one side, you have Agrippa in all of his prominence and in all of his glory and all of his robes. And on the other side, you have Paul. On one side is a throne. On the other side is shackles. One wears a crown and the other wears chains. Agrippa is a king, but he is bound in slavery to his sin. Paul is a chained prisoner who is rejoicing in the forgiveness and the freedom that he has found in Jesus Christ. And the Lord is going to give Paul an audience with this crowd of people. And do you know that the Lord has given all of us an audience as well? You have an audience. It's what I like to refer to as our sphere of influence. That's the audience that the Lord has placed you before. It's the people that you live before. It's the people that you live with. It's the people that you work with. It's the people that you go to school with. It's the people that your kids maybe play sports with. It's the barista at your favorite coffee shop. All of that is your sphere of influence. It's the audience that God has placed you before. Paul is placed before this audience. It's his big moment, and we're going to see that Paul makes much of Jesus. We pick it up in chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. The ESV version says he made a defense. That that word defense is an apologetic. That's where we get our word apologetics today. It's a defense of the gospel. And I want you to think for a moment here. Picture this scene. And if you've been with us in, in, in our study in the book of Acts and we've seen Paul's journey, especially these last few weeks, I want you to think about everything that Paul could have talked about in this moment. He could have talked about everything that his accusers had done that was unlawful. He could have talked about how corrupt the political and the religious system was in Israel. He could have talked about all of those things, but Paul isn't going to do any of those things. No, he wants to point to how the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed his life. And he's going to use this moment to point people to Jesus, 
Because Paul knows that that is the one answer for a lost world. It's Jesus Christ. And so Paul's not interested in winning a case or winning an argument. He wants to win souls. And what Paul does here is he starts with his own story, his own testimony of how Jesus changed his life. We'll pick it up in verse 2. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which, with have, to, which have to do with the Jews. Paul's excited here to stand before Agrippa because Agrippa understood the Jewish culture. He understood their traditions and their laws, and we're going to see he knew about Jesus and that story. So he says this, therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Give me some patience here as I tell my story. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul says, Agrippa, I was very, very religious. I was a Pharisee, Paul would say in Philippians, and as a Pharisee, I lived blameless to the law. Paul's saying, look, I was zealous for our religion. And now I stand, verse 6, and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, they all knew the promise, the thing they were waiting for, the promise that God had made to the fathers was that the Messiah was coming, okay? So Paul's saying something there. He's linking something here. He's saying, this is why I'm here, because of the hope of the promise of the Messiah. He says, to this promise are 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. And then addressing himself to the whole court, he asks an amazing question in verse 8 when he says this. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? Just looking at the whole amphitheater. I want to know, why is it thought to be incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And certainly that would not be an incredible thing for the Jews to think about. For one, their history is filled with the testimony of the power of God, starting with creation and how God spoke the world into existence. That his spoken word, he said, let there be light and there was light and let there be land and there was land and let there be animals and stars and the moon and, and then people. They knew, they believed it was a part of their, their, their history. They believed that, that God was creator. And then you look at their history as a nation, how God delivered them from Egypt with all of the plagues. And then how he took them through the Red Sea and then had it collapse on Pharaoh's army. And then how he fed them in the wilderness with manna and quail and water out of a rock. I mean, they could go through their history and just point to all of these different things that, that just showed the power of God among his people. 
And so he's saying, why should it seem like an amazing thing to you that God should, could raise the dead? And you know what? That same question could be asked today. Why would anybody have a hard time believing in the resurrection? I mean, people have trouble with miracles because they fail to comprehend the power and the reality of God. And you see, the difficulty of a task has to be measured by who's being asked to fulfill the task. For example, if you came to me today and said, hey, Rob, can I have 20 bucks? I'm, I'm, in, I'm in need. I could probably help you out. Actually, I can't today. I don't have any money on me today. But, <laughs> but usually... I might have 20 bucks in my pocket. But if you came to me and said, hey, Rob, I need some help. I need, I need $20,000. You're talking to the wrong guy. I'm sorry. I don't have that kind of cash anywhere. You know, I, I couldn't help you out in that. So is it a really big deal? This is what Paul's saying. Is it, is it a really big deal to God who spoke the world into existence? and who sustains, keeps this whole world and all the planets from colliding by the word of his power? Is it a big deal? Is raising the dead really, really a tough thing for him? Paul could say, I I know no one else has ever done that before, but we're talking about God, right? Now, this is Paul's setup question. And he's saying, guys, Should it be a big deal to any of us, knowing who our God is, that he could raise the dead? And in a minute, Paul's going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. This is where he's going. He's setting them up. It's just, it's beautiful. It's brilliant. But Paul continues in his story in verse 9. He says, indeed, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So this also I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death. So I had people put in prison, I had people killed, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. I mean, think about this. It's like Paul's putting a gun to people's head and saying, deny Jesus or, or you're, I'm going to shoot you. He's like a guy who tortures people. This is who he was prior to coming to Christ. This is what he's saying. He says, and, and, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I mean, I took this as far as I possibly could. Paul is sharing his testimony here of how he hated Jesus and the followers of Jesus, but then he gets to the the day that that all changed, when revelation happened in his life. He says this, verse 12, while thus occupied, or we could say, while thus consumed with this hatred, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. Now, this is a radical point that Paul is making. He's saying this, I was a part of the very group that's trying now to have me killed. I was working for them. I was like their chief guy. And now they want to get me killed. And he says, and here's why. 
On that road to Damascus, something happened to me. Verse 13, he says, At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. We're talking bright. Brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now a goad was a sharp stick that they would use to poke the donkey, kind of hit it in the back to get it going, to get it moving. And Paul was kicking against the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That was the goad that was poking at his heart, that was moving him toward Jesus, and he was fighting against it at every turn until this day. He sees this light. Jesus asks this question, and then he says, so so I said, "Who, who are you, Lord? Who is it that's talking to me? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the whole trajectory of my life changed that day. Because it was that day that I realized that I was wrong. That Jesus was alive. That he was the Messiah. That he indeed had risen from the dead. He says, my eyes were open and Jesus was telling me that he had saved me and he was calling me to be his witness. And then he says this, and he called me, King Agrippa, for this purpose. Verse 17 and 18. For I will deliver you to the Jewish people as well as, or deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And here's our second point. Here we see in verse 18, the power of the gospel. In verse 18, Paul gives in this one sentence, the power that the gospel of Jesus Christ has to transform people. And he says it starts with opening their blind eyes. You see, one of Satan's biggest strategies is to blind a person to the reality of their own condition. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. And they don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Satan loves to blind people's eyes and mind to their condition. I mean, think about this. Look how long it takes an alcoholic to admit that they have a problem. Some never do. Their family sees it. Their friends see it. They all know that there's a problem, but they keep insisting. The alcoholic keeps insisting, oh, no, I don't have a problem. I've got this under control. 
Rarely do you hear a person admitting to have, having a drug addiction. They, they never say, you know, I'm a drug addict. They may admit to having a slight problem with drugs. Hey, I like to smoke a little weed now and then, but I'm not an addict. Satan has them blinded. Sometimes, somehow they, they, they think they're still in control. Satan loves to blind people to the fact that one day they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for their lives. People are blind in their thinking that that they're okay, or he blinds them in this way, to think that they have all the time in the world. How many people do you know who know that they're not right with God, but they're like, I got time, I got time. There's no hurry. They're blinded to the reality that we're told in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7, that it's appointed unto man once to die, and then after that's the judgment. When we breathe our last breath on this earth, we breathe our next breath standing before God. And we better know Jesus. People are also blind to the fact that unless a person is born again, they can't in inherit or can't enter into the kingdom of God. John 3, verses 3 through 5. But it was Jesus who said this in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by that way. Isn't that heavy to think about? A lot of people on the broad road thinking that they're fine, but then he said this, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that have found it. But this is what the gospel does. This is what the truth of Jesus does, is it opens blind people's eyes. Suddenly it's like the light goes on. I love talking to somebody when all of a sudden you just see the light goes on. Suddenly they realize, like, you know what? I need Jesus. Such a beautiful thing. When we, when we see that happens, Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let there be light in darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. It's God. He comes and he, he's, he puts on the floodlights. And it enters in, suddenly it opens up our eyes. And when our eyes are open to the truth about Jesus, they're also open to the truth about ourselves. Remember the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah went around, you know, pointing his finger at everybody else. Woe is you, and woe is you. And he's like, you know, you guys are in trouble, but I'm okay. But then he had a vision of heaven. He sees God in all of his glory. And when he sees God in all of his glory, Isaiah says, woe is me. He went out saying, woe is you, and woe is you, and woe is you, and definitely woe is you guys over there, you know? <laughs> he sees God in heaven, and he's like, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm in trouble. The first thing the gospel does is to bring us to the realization that we're not okay, that we're sick and that we need a doctor, that a change is needed. And when that happens, this is what, 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 what's taking place is you're moving from darkness into the light. But then Paul says another thing here in verse 18 that the gospel has the power to do, and I love this. It's the power to turn us from the power of Satan to the power of God. 
I love how he puts this in Colossians 1 verse 13. He says, for he, speaking of Jesus, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and has transferred us in the, into the kingdom of his own dear son. Here's the idea. That word transferred, he's saying like, he's taken us out of one kingdom and he's put us into another. And guys, think about this. This is amazing. We were enemies of God because of our rebellion. And it was our own rebellion that put us in bondage to sin. And God sees us in that place. We're his enemies. We rebelled against him. And he sends his son Jesus to leave heaven and come to this earth on a rescue mission. And he rescues those of us who are his enemies. He rescues us who have rebelled against him. Who does that? Who tries to rescue their enemies? And when he rescues us, he doesn't rub our rebellion in our face, or he doesn't rescue us to make us his prisoners. No, he rescues us to forgive us of our sins and all of our wrongdoings. And he he rescues us to remove our guilt and our shame. And he gives us a completely new start that in Jesus, he says, we are made a new creation that old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But it gets even better than that because Paul says he also provides us with an inheritance. I take you out of being in in bondage because of your rebellion and you are my enemies and I'm resting you and I'm bringing you into my family and I'm giving you an inheritance. I'm forgiving you. Who would do that to his enemies and then write them into his will? It's incredible. Peter put it this way, speaking about our inheritance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away. And get this, it's reserved in heaven for you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, there's a reservation in heaven with your name on it. There's an inheritance in heaven with your name on it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And Peter goes on to say, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. But it doesn't stop there. The next thing he says is he sanctifies us. And that means that we are set apart by God for something special. I love the way John in his epistle in 1 John 3 verse 1 puts it. He says, behold. And the word behold means to look at something and be amazed. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called his sons and his daughters. Guys, the love of God for us is so incredible. The forgiveness of God is so amazing the restoration of god that he's made possible in christ is beyond our imagination this is the power of the gospel and i want you to note the last part of verse 18 
it's made available to anyone who believes. He says, those who are sanctified by me are by faith in me. I'll say, this, this, is, this was my mission. This was my message. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer, and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul's saying this is what it was all about. Jesus came to suffer. The prophets told us that this is what the Messiah would do. He would die, and three days later, he would rise again from the dead. And he says, Agrippa, this is what I've been proclaiming. And that brings us to our final point today. What's the proper response to the gospel? Well, let's consider the responses that we see here. First from Festus, verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. He's like, Paul, you're out of your mind. Paul, you are a crazy dude. And that, unfortunately, is the response of some people today who want to stay blind, who want to stay you know, ignorant. They think that we who are Christians are crazy, that we're foolish, that, that we're silly, And the reason is, is they have willfully stayed blind and ignorant to the reality of God, to the fact that the creation around us speaks of a creator, that the design speaks of a designer, and they stay willfully ignorant to the reality that in Israel today, there's an empty tomb that Jesus walked out of, and no one has ever been able to prove that he didn't rise again from the dead. But they want to ignore that. And so first we see Festus, and notice how Paul addresses that mentality. This is beautiful, verse 25. But he said, I, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. Don't you love his respect? But speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since This thing was not done in a corner. He's like saying, look, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't, it's not a secret. It wasn't done in a corner. He knows. Everyone knows. There's an empty tomb. And no one has been able to come up with a logical explanation in Paul's day or in our day of why it's empty, except for the fact that Jesus came out of the grave. And that's the thing that people are going to have to answer to today. You must answer, what are you going to do with Christ? What do you do with the resurrection? What do you do with the empty tomb? And then Paul turns his attention to King Agrippa, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. 
And Paul said, oh, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Oh, I wish you all would become followers of Jesus. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Like they come to the same conclusion. And then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Here's what I want you to catch. King Agrippa, his wife Bernice, Festus, many of those who were listening to Paul, they had it all. They had everything that this world says that you need to pursue to make you happy. They had power, they had position, they had possessions. They looked free, but in reality, they were the ones who were in bondage, chained to their own sins. They were the ones who were really on trial here, and they were being weighed in the balances and found wanting. They were lacking. And notice Agrippa says, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost is never good enough, guys. You're not going to stand before God and say, if you don't don't know Jesus today, you're not going to stand before God and say, you know, I I almost became a Christian. I I went to church a lot. I listened to that Rob Salvato guy ramble on and on and on, you know. (laughs) Jesus said there's no neutral ground when it comes to him. He said, you're either for me or you are against me. Agrippa's like, I almost. Listen, there's only one right decision. Reminds me of there was a tech genius, a high school student, and a pastor who were all on a small three-person plane. And all of a sudden, the plane started having some engine problems One engine went out, and then the other engine was about to go out. And the pilot said, hey, this isn't looking good. We're going down, but the problem is we we only have three parachutes, and I'm taking one of them. So he takes one and jumps out the plane. And then the tech genius grabs another one. And he says, I'm sorry, but, but I've, I've got to take this because I'm, I'm the smartest man in the world and the world just needs me. So he puts it on his back and he jumps out of the plane. And the pastor's sitting there and he, he, he says to the young high school student, he says, you know, son, he goes, I've lived a long life, a great life, and I know Jesus and I'm knowing, I know I'm going to heaven. You, you take the last shoot and I'll go down with the plane. And the high school student says, that won't be necessary because the smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. (laughs) Listen, there's a lot of people today who don't believe in Jesus, and they're the ones who are on trial today, and many of them refuse to respond to the gospel and give their lives to Jesus. They refuse to consider the resurrection. 
And for a lot of them, it's because they've grabbed a hold of something in this life that they thought could save them. They grabbed a hold of something that they thought would bring them lasting satisfaction. They put their identity in something that they thought was going to be life-giving, but in reality, it has only been life-sucking. It's just been sucking the life right out of them. And today, they're on the road to destruction, and they're looking for a ripcord that isn't there. But in reality there still is a chance. His name is Jesus. You know, one of the things I love about the 49er quarterback, Brock Purdy, is he has said over and over again this, my identity is not in football. My identity is not in being the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. My identity is in Jesus. So no matter matter what happens, I'm good. Because my identity is found in him. And that's what we all can say. That that when our identity is in Jesus, we, we know this. That he promised that he who began a good work in us, he's going to complete that. He promised that he's going to take us to heaven. He promised eternal life. You know, Jesus said, the, the devil's a thief and a robber who comes to kill, rob, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And he offers us a beautiful life here on this earth and following him and an inheritance that we have to look forward to. And that can be yours today. If you don't know him, if you just open up your heart to him.